Good morning. Welcome. On behalf of my colleagues up here with me, I want to thank you for being here to watch the work of the judicial branch. We're pleased to have a full courtroom of press and public, guests in the State House watching on a monitor, and those watching online. It's a privilege to welcome the attorneys. I know both sides have worked incredibly hard to bring forth this argument here today. For those of you who may not have previously attended a Supreme Court oral argument, thank you for taking the time to be here. Each side will have approximately 30 minutes. We'll just see how that goes with regard to the questioning to present their case. The court thanks you for listening intently and appreciates your understanding that this hearing is not an opportunity for any type of public comments. So we're here this morning to hear oral argument in the case of members of the Medical Licensing Board of Indiana, Prosecutor of Hendricks County, Lake County, Marion County, Monroe County, St. Joe County, Tippecanoe County, and Warwick County as appellants versus Planned Parenthood of Great Northwest, Hawaii, Alaska, Indiana, Kentucky, Inc., All Options, Inc., Dr. Amy Caldwell, uh, Whole Women's Health Alliance, Women's Medical Groups, Professional Groups as appellees. The appellants, the appellants will argue first. Um, this is a civil transfer on a 56A on the preliminary injunction granted by the lower court. Uh, parties, are you ready to proceed? All right, General Fisher. Thank you, Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The science tells us that abortion terminates the existence of a distinct living human being with unique DNA and the capacity to direct its own development. Ethics tells us not to end innocent human life. Rowan Casey removed the power to protect the unborn, but after 50 years of federal judicial micromanagement, Dobbs returned the abortion issue to the states, resulting in the enactment of Senate Bill 1, which prohibits abortion except in cases of rape and incest with a serious health risk to the mother or where there is a lethal fetal anomaly. Still, abortion providers seek to strip the right to protect the unborn from Hoosier voters once again, with no greater warrant than existed under federal law. They urge the court to recognize a novel, unwritten, historically counterindicated right to abortion under Article I, Section 1 of the Indiana Constitution. But first, abortion providers have no standing to assert the rights of the putative rights of hypothetical patients. Article I, Section 1 affords no judicially enforceable rights in any event. And third, whatever else liberty might mean under Article I, Section 1, it does not mean abortion, which was prohibited uh, before, during, and again, immediately after the period of constitutional adoption. So ruling for Planned Parenthood would flout many precedents and legal rules with untold consequences. Ruling for the state would merely return to where things stood before Roe. Essentially, Planned Parenthood invites the court to amend the Constitution and not to search for the law. The trial court accepted that invitation. This court should reject it. I welcome the court's questions. Judge, or, General, should we have a concern that we're reviewing this order on the grant of a preliminary injunction? You do not mention the standard review in any of your briefing. So are you asking us today to get to the full merits of the action on this motion? The, the appeal before us is a preliminary injunction. Right. This is not an appeal that the court below found a law unconstitutional that we would review under Appellate Rule 4. Tell me your argument for us deciding a full merits before the case has been tried out in the trial court. It's not clear what a trial would cover. The trial court said that there's a right to abortion under the Constitution, and this law violates it. There's no I, I did not find they said that. So let's say we don't agree that they did not. So you're saying that the trial court below found the law unconstitutional. 
Yes. I did not read that. They, they, it was the preliminary injunction standard that we have in Indiana. Yeah. If, there's a, if they made a prima facie, which is sort of the lowest standard of proof, likelihood right. of success on an open issue. It's not clear what legal standard would even apply on a trial. Nobody, I don't know what proof we would bring forward. The trial court's view is that there's a right to abortion. This law says we, abortion doesn't, can't exist. So we ignore all our jurisprudence with regard to the lens that we look at a case that comes up to us, not on a full merits, but on a preliminary injunction. You want us to review the, that, that case law? Well, the, the principal inquiry under a preliminary injunction is likelihood of success on the merits. Our position is that there's no likelihood of success on the merits because there's no right to abortion in Indiana. If we are would you, right. Would you agree with me that that's an issue of first impression? Uh, yes, I think it still is, sure. Yes, yes. That the court had a chance to review view on that in the Brizzy case, right. and that was a fractured court with one justice finding there was a right, one justice finding there wasn't a right, and the majority dodging the question. Yes, assumed the right to exist, right. yes, and then assumed a standard. But there's no there's no reason to understand what that standard would be. What would we be having a trial over? Is that well, when you look at you look at if a statute, if you look at a statute, if you find it, even if you if the court finds that it's not that there is not a right, whether it's judicially enforceable or not, there is not that right. That doesn't end the inquiry with regard to what's pending in the lower court, correct? Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, I think I, I think you, you'll have to hear from Mr. Falkmore about that. But I think you've got here uh, claims about. The, the ban, but also the distinction between hospitals and, and, and clinics. And that distinction goes, first of all, to the whether there, a right exists. But you agree the only issue before us today is the issue of the preliminary injunction. There was two other constitutional claims, one made under Article 12 and one made under Article 23. You well, believe we should get to the merits of those today as well? I think the plaintiffs have withdrawn the Article 12 claim because we've clarified they, they, did, they I think, misunderstood the statute. But the, the transcript, the state did not provide the transcript, so I'm not quite sure how that played out in the trial court. If they withdrew yeah. a claim, I looked for the transcript to see if they withdrew the claim, and that was not in there. Yeah, I, I, well, I think it's clear enough in the, in, in the remaining uh, documents in the record. If not, Mr. Falk can clarify. But if there is a remaining uh, Article 12, or I'm sorry, Article 1, Section 12 claim, that's not certainly not before the court right now. What about now. the equal protection? What about the um, Article 1, Section 23 claim? They haven't appealed the denial of the preliminary injunction on that. I think you'll have to ask them whether that's something they intend to press forward with. Uh, I think the, the logical, the, the antecedent issue to the preliminary injunction is whether there's a right to abortion under the Indiana Constitution. It, there's no way, I think, to confront the preliminary injunction without confronting that question. And it's the state's position that the trial court's finding that there's a likelihood of success of the merits is the same as finding a statute unconstitutional. Yes, I don't see what room there would be to have a trial under the trial court's ruling in this case. I don't know what we would be having a trial over. I don't know what evidence we would present that could possibly persuade the trial court otherwise. If there is a standard that this court thinks needs to be met to prove whether a right exists, then we... What about the rational basis review? If, if, if there's not, if it's not core constitutional value, is it game over? Or if part of the statute would be subject to strict scrutiny, then you still have to have additional evidence or Indiana's version of strict scrutiny as set out in the Price case. Oh, the material, well, I, uh, evidence of what, I guess, is the question. Because, of course, nobody doubts that this law prohibits abortion in the vast majority of circumstances. So. In, in general, that's the problem with deciding a case on preliminary injunction is we don't have the record. Nothing, we, the transcript was not done. As to the full merits of the parameters of this, even if it's found that there is no um, inalienable right to have an abortion of the Constitution, the statutes would still have to um, pass a rational basis or India's version of rational basis. Would you agree with that? I would, but I don't understand the plaintiffs to be contesting that. 
I don't think they take the position that somehow this law is irrational in that it does not actually try to achieve or, or likely achieve the aim, its aims. Well, what about, you know, looking at like the 10 weeks restriction on rape and abortion, there's arguably some equal protection with regard, what's the difference between 11 weeks or 10 weeks with regard to, is there a rational basis for saying that a 10 or 11 year old who is pregnant is able to by a parent in the home with no other person to bring the case. So there are some other issues that would have to come out in looking at what's been done in states around the country. You, you want to tie everything up in the preliminary injunction. I'm struggling with that. And I'm going to let you be answered. No, no. That. So Look, I don't, the plaintiffs on. are not contesting that. That, that. If that issue is going to be raised, it's going to be in a different lawsuit. They are not raising that issue here. So, and if they want to amend their complaint to, to raise that issue, that can be addressed after the court rules on the preliminary injunction. But I don't see how any of those issues can go forward without an assessment and a determination of whether the Indiana Constitution affords a right to abortion. I oh. thought your view. Go ahead. I thought your view was that you don't want us to reach the merits here because these plaintiffs <laughs> lack standing. Yes, threshold to the threshold question is the question of standing, the question of third-party rights, which this court has rejected in the speech contest. Article One, Section Nine has rejected it in uh, self-incrimination and search and seizure, and it is said uh, in numerous cases that the, the evaluation of constitutional issues has to be done where the parties present the rights, and this 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 case does not give that opportunity. And Let's talk about the merits briefly. Is it the state's view that the state constitution protects no unenumerated rights? Uh, well, I think the, the I think what, what the court would, ever, would have to do, as far as Article I, Section 1 goes, we don't think that there is a judicially enforceable right there. Uh, more broadly, if, you're, if, the, if the court is asking a question, for example, under Article I, Section 23, about whether um, a a, a statute draws a lawful distinction, it always has to ask the question about the police power. Is this a, a proper and appropriate, a lawful use of the police power? Um, so I think those, that, there are vehicles for asking those same questions. So is it, is it the state's position that um, Article I, Section 1, which largely lifts language straight from the Declaration of Independence, is not in any way or under any circumstances judicially enforceable? Not on its own, and, and I think that this court has used it in some circumstances uh, to, for example, aid in, in statutory interpretation as it did in the Lawrence case. That's perfectly appropriate. Trying to discern whether there are standalone rights within life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, I think is, is not something that, that the judiciary is, is in a position to do, as well, what, cases what if, have indicated. What if, the, what if the statute didn't have an exception for life of the mother? Mm -hmm. Could it be attacked on the basis that it violates you know, the explicit right to life that's in Article I, Section 1? I don't, I don't know that we would countenance that specific challenge. I think it could be challenged on other grounds, and I, think, I don't think that there could be a, a statute that survived that kind of challenge. Well, I want to pick up on that. So let's say we don't agree with you that it's just devoid, that Article I, Section 1, that our founding fathers, no. frontiersmen came out concerned with individual liberty and limited government, um, thought that there were some core, very few rights. So well, what do we look at? What is the test we look at? We look at the history. We look at what the framers, yeah. the debates. Yeah. We look at the laws at the time. Would you agree with that? That's the, I, th I think that that's right. Okay. Well, so that's the test. Mm -hmm. So and it, it, it's a strict test. So we go back and look at the time. And I read all the debates. Um, and they were very concerned. That we're we're going to put this in. And it wasn't, just a it wasn't just a preamble as it is in the Declaration of Independence. They made this Article I, Section 1. So it has to mean something. So when I look at the laws at the time, every single law that was in time in the 80s, and before we even had the laws in Indiana, we adopted sort of the common law. We had that reception statute bringing in um, British law. 
Every single statute protected a woman's right with regard to making a medical decision to save her life, correct? That was always an exception. Yeah. So if you're saying that we're to look at what the framers talked about, the laws at the time, and when I reviewed every single law in Indiana that ever dealt with abortion, every single one protected the right of the mother with regard to making a medical decision to save her life, correct? Correct. So if we look at the test you're asking us to do, if you look at text and history and the laws, that's always been there. So if there is, if we, that would be one that would be in an, a right, in Article 1, Section 1. Would you agree with that? Well, I, I guess I'm a little confused by your question. If, if, if we're asking the threshold question whether there are judicially enforceable rights under Article 1, Section 1, I, I'm not making, you know... Uh, I know you don't want to see that, but let's, I, let's go there. Let's just say that, if you assume that, that if you assume that, and then we're asking, is that a right that one could imagine is protected, given the history, then, then yes, I think manifestly. Because when you look at, we've had 30 cases in Indiana where we have discussed Article 1, Section 1 whether it was, and i got to give a shout-out to Justice Hackney back there. He was the one, 1893, that said women could be lawyers, right? Then we had the Lawrence case with regard to Article I, Section 1, talking about the right um, to refuse medical treatment. So we've had 30 cases, and I understand early on with the prohibition and the first two cases that were mentioned were set aside, but not necessarily on Article I, Section 1 grounds. So we've looked at this, we've evaluated this, and then I look at sort of, you know, Price and City Chapel, where we found some core issues in Indiana with regard to religious freedom mm -hmm. and political speech. If there was ever going to be a right in Article 1, Section 1, and we look at the test you want, which is the same test as mm -hmm. Glocksburg, uh, SCOTUS, a woman has the right to make a decision with regard to saving her life. I'm perfectly fine with that. Okay. Now, I think the, the I guess I, I want to push back a little bit on the use of the precedents. I mean, I don't think that Schmidt uh, was uh, saying, well, Article and Section 1 is fair game, and, and, but it's just not about alcohol. It was saying, I don't know what, we don't know what principle the court was using in those cases. Later on, whenever the court used Article and Section 1, it was always paired with something else. The Leach case wasn't strictly about Section 1. It was about understanding well, the right to currently they law. found a, a right to scalpers in not Article on its own. Section 1. That was paired again with Article 1, Section 23. This, it was never on its own. It was never the only source of rights. It was asking the question. The question it was asking, I, I, I just want to say in curtly, the question that was being asked was going, goes back to what I suggested earlier, which is, is this an, a proper use of the police power? And that is a question that arises not only under Article 1, Section 1, but under Article 1, Section 23 and other, and other uh, provisions as well. well Council, not, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I want to follow up on the Chief's question there. If, if, um, you know, if, if Griswold beget Roe, why doesn't Lawrence uh, dictate the same outcome here? Uh, Lawrence was not a constitutional case. Lawrence was a statutory case about the Health Care Consent Act, and, and the court adverted to Section 1 as a statutory uh, guide. And, 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 so and, is it and your it, position that the, what we said in Lawrence with reference uh, to Article 1, Section 1 was dicta? I think largely so. And I think let's also bear in mind, let's bear in mind that what the court was asking there is whether one could fairly read the statute to encompass a right to refuse treatment, not a right to, um, to insist on a particular course of treatment, which has a very different common law history. Uh, but I don't think that we can take Lawrence as a constitutional Section 1 case. It is a statutory case. Counsel, there was one thing I didn't quite understand in one of your previous answers. Were you saying that you're just okay with an outcome, that there would be a constitutional right for a woman to terminate her pregnancy to save her own life, or are you conceding there really is 
a judicially enforceable state constitutional right for a woman to terminate a pregnancy to protect her own life. I, look, I, I think that, that I'm not conceding anything on that. I think the point is that the history is different. If we ask that question in some context, that history is going to tell us probably a very different let, answer. Let me ask a slightly different question. Then. Obviously, the state's position is that there's not a right to terminate a pregnancy. Uh, does the state believe that there's a judicially enforceable constitutional right to continue a pregnancy? Uh, well, I think that that's a, a very different question. I think we look there at this idea of rejecting a right of, of, of medical intervention. And I think that question can come up, again, has very different historical tradition, and that question could be answered in any number of contexts. It doesn't have to be Article I, Section 1. We can look Where at else could we look to, to decide whether or not there's a oh, constitutional think, right to continue a pregnancy? I think we could very easily ask that question under our Article I, Section 23 claim. Uh, there's a classification that one could easily define in, in, in that sort of statute and contest it and ask whether the, the use of the police power is legitimate based on all of the history that we know of. Council, is it your position then that there, um, if Indiana would adopt a total abortion ban with no exceptions for the life of the mother, that that would be constitutionally permissible? I have grave doubts about that. I mean, I, I, I do. Tell me about your doubts. Well, I, I have grave doubts because, again, I think the vehicle would very easily be Article One, Section 23. And then the question about whether that's a legitimate use of the police power, I think, is a, it would be a very difficult question for the state to answer in the affirm, that, that that is an appropriate use, given the history of the right to refuse medical treatment. So Oh, sorry, okay. I'm sorry. And given the history of the right to preserve one's own life, I think that those are those lead to different answers substantively. Yeah, I have a slightly different question then. So, if there is a right, so we, we've agreed, and, and we're sort of narrowing the scope here and finding something that is contained that possibly is contained in Article One, Section One. If there are any qualifications on that right, such as if a woman is in a, is in a life um, endangering situation and needs to have an abortion to save her life, and the doctor has to go under the way the statute is written do a writing, do, certify it, and attach the writing, isn't that condition um, subject to a strict scrutiny analysis? Well, I don't, I, I don't think so. I, I think that you're, you're asking there a question about, um, you know, what is, uh, what is, essentially is the distinction under Article I, Section 23, and is it a legitimate distinction? That's where I'm channeling this. I'm not channeling it through some kind of material burden analysis. In any event, uh, I think those are entirely separate questions, and you're talking there about some modification of a right that you're assuming to exist. Now, this court has, has indicated that, of course, the whole point of the material burden analysis is to ask whether, notwithstanding the legislation, the right still exists at its core. And I think when we're talking about documentation and, and sort of regulatory affairs, that's not a, a, a question that goes to the core of whether the, the right is being exercised or still can be exercised. If Morning, we, Mr. Fisher. You go ahead, Justice Goff. I wanted to uh, direct your attention back to the um, kind of the practical issue before us. And with respect to the injunction, um, as it relates to these plaintiffs, if I understand the decision of the trial court, she's finding there's a, a, a likelihood that there's a judicially enforceable right. And the statute, SB 1, uh, carves out and protects a woman's right to choose to terminate uh, a pregnancy in certain limited exceptions. And we have before us uh, some limited amount of record in, in, in the form of affidavits uh, from, from some folks that work with the plaintiffs that suggests uh, SB1 is going to limit statutorily permissible abortions uh, in a very problematic way. There are people that use these facilities who are poor, uh, there are people who use these facilities who, who might not otherwise 
have access to a protected right, even under what the General Assembly has, has carved out. Um, and, and given the deferential standard of review uh, for the preliminary injunction and the way this was carved, how is that not problematic for your case, that there should at least be some, some exception carved out for these providers to at least continue uh, to provide the services that are, are still legal under SB 1? Well, the, I mean, the law makes them lawful. I think if we're asking about whether they can afford to stay open to perform the lawful abortions to become hospitals or ambulatory surgical centers to become hospitals. They, they can't. You'd agree under the, under the current bill, under SB 1 that's enjoined right now, they can't uh, perform even, even the legal abortions. No, that's, that's, that's right. That, that, they have to become hospitals or ASCs. There's nothing prohibiting them from doing that. They just need to, to do it. Uh, so I, I guess I'm, I'm a little unclear on the question, except that, um, you know, there's... I guess I'm asking, why is it all or nothing? Uh, I mean, judge, uh, trial judges looking at this, and, and we have the ban that we have, um, I, I'm having a, a difficult time figuring out why these providers should be carved out in, in any way other than what's in the statute. I don't see a way or a reason to carve out, particularly because what she had to look at was uh, affidavits that indicate they're better suited to perform these. Uh, they're, they're specialists in this particular service, and so if someone of limited means uh, wanted to go and have access to a procedure to save her life, uh, and she couldn't, isn't that problematic? I invite the court to take a look at the declaration of Monique Wubenhorst, which is in our appendix, and that sets that declaration sets forth why hospitals are better equipped uh, to handle these kinds of emergency situations. Uh, but in any event, I think you know the, the thrust of the argument about the distinction between hospitals and uh, and clinics is simply goes back to whether there's a fundamental right to abortion to, that exists to begin with. I don't think the sort of finer d distinction that might, might be here by way of a article. When Section 23 argument is presented right now because the court, the trial court, rejected that that argument. General, before you sit down, no, I have a I'd like to add just a second before. I'd like to add 10 minutes to his time. We've got additional questions before he sits down. A, a, a narrow question, please, about the relief that you're seeking. The opening brief asks that we reverse the preliminary injunction. The reply brief asks that we vacate and reverse the preliminary injunction. Is, is there a difference between those two? And what do you want us to do here? Yeah, you know, I don't think there's a material distinction. I think the whole point here is let's uh, let's vacate the preliminary injunction. Uh, and I think. It, from our point of view, there's nothing, there shouldn't be anything left in the case to decide beyond that. And so, as to Article 1, Section 1. As to Article 1, Section 1, I think we'll have to listen for, to the plaintiffs whether they think there's anything left under Article 1, Section 23. Uh, if there is, then I think the remand order can be limited to that. If there's nothing left there or under Article 1, Section 12, the remand could be with uh, instructions to dismiss. Uh, but the main thing right now is, is, the, is the injunction and lifting that and making sure that's not in place. I, have a couple, I want to get you back to standing. We've taken you all over the place. Um, you made a standing objection in the lower court to the other two claims, but you did not originally make any standing objection to the Article One, Section 1. Why was that? And then, uh, and then under the June Medical case, they talked about sort of waiver or forfeiture. How, how do you get around that? So a couple of things. Uh, first of all, in the trial court, we, the trial court would have been bound by the Planned Parenthood versus Carter decision in the Court of Appeals, which we didn't think presented uh, an opportunity for us to raise that, in, especially a preliminary injunction. <laughs> we're immediately trying to put our best foot forward and not start off with an argument that we know we're going to lose. Um, I think waiver may be relevant in a situation of final judgment. Um, I think we would be within our rights to raise the standing question anyway. Um, if there were a, a remand for further, further development, we could raise it in the answer, which has not been filed. So I don't think we're in that position where waiver is an issue. 
standing is jurisdictional, isn't it? It doesn't have yeah. to be raised to be preserved. I, I, no, I think that that's right. And I, I think, you know, Justice Thomas sheds a lot of light on this in, in his dissents in Gene Medical and Hellerstedt, uh, where he talks about third-party standing as a feature of jurisdiction. And so uh, I think that the court certainly is, is, is appropriate for the court to raise that on its own. It's appropriate for the parties to brief it. And, and I think the, the court should uh, take that seriously as a jurisdictional matter. What would be the benefits of the state to delaying this? I mean, you're all here now. You're asking for an opinion. Standing would just delay it. They, uh, they would mean it, it would come back. So what is the, what, what is the benefit to <laughs> delaying? Uh, the benefit is respect for separation of powers. It's respect for the limits of, the, of judicial authority, which I think is, is very critical in the long run for all of us. Well, General, on that point, am I correct in assuming that with your theory, the way this question should be answered would be with a pregnant woman filing suit, understanding that by the time we answered the question, the pregnancy would, would no longer be, and therefore we would have to apply a very well-recognized exception to the mootness doctrine, and we would decide the question in that context. Is that right? Uh, th that's one way. Uh, I don't think it would necessarily have to be that way. I mean, I if, if it was that way, given that uh, mootness is all about protecting the yeah. separation of powers yeah. as well, why is it a superior vehicle to decide this question in the context of a mootness exception instead of deciding it in the context of a narrowly applied, say, third-party standing uh, it's a superior vehicle because it presents a concrete case or controversy presenting the party's rights, which is a, a, an important limit on separation of powers. But I also don't think that uh, it necessarily has to arise that way. Bear in mind that for juveniles seeking uh, judicial bypass, there's been a system in place for a long time to have very quick adjudication. And it's not, you know, whether we take that system and apply it exactly or not, it demonstrates that the court system is fully capable of adjudicating a, per, uh, a woman's real live uh, need for an abortion and evaluating whether there is an entitlement to that in very uh, quick time period. So I don't have any doubt that, that everybody the courts included could get together and have an adjudication. Uh, could any woman by, a, by just by the basis of a reproductive nature be able to bring the claim, or it would have to be, you, under the state's position, um, to have direct injury, it would have to be a pregnant woman to bring uh, Yeah, the I think that's our view, is that it would have to be a woman who's pregnant who's, who wants an abortion. Well, there's been a, uh, a situation like this that, at least in my view, is unprecedented, where there's a, a constitutional right recognized and protected at the federal level for 50 years, and it's, it's gone. Why, in, in that instance, should that question of whether or not in Indiana Section 1 is judicial, judicially enforceable or whether in it there exists some right to be left alone, why shouldn't that go through the amendment process? Why shouldn't there be a, a, a referendum that issues put to the people? Why, why should that end with the courts or, or the General Assembly? Isn't that at least a, an issue of constitutional dimension that should, should go through the amendment process? We already went through the process in 1850 when the law prohibited abortion and the statute that, was reenacted in 1852. The provision changed, though, in 1984, and it, from all men to all people, I, and, and Roe was in place at that time. And so what, what are we to take from that? Nothing. Nothing. I think that everybody understood that all men in the Constitution meant all people, and that was a stylistic change meant to cohere with common understanding. It was not a substantive distinction. Nobody thought that in 1984 there was a referendum on whether there was a right to abortion in the Indiana Constitution. State's position is that the people should just have no, they, they don't have a, a place in the process through the referendum? Well, the people have plenty of places in the process. They've, they've elected representatives who have enacted this law. There's an amendment process to go through that's fully available. 
that's the system that we have in Indiana, and we don't uh, we don't uh, modify the Constitution by way of, of judicial decree to say, well, in this situation, uh, we're going to throw this this question open to some kind of initiative or referendum. Uh, we have a process for that, uh, and that process needs to be respected. Council, one thing you've not talked about at all is, and it's another procedural question, is is whether it matters that this is a facial challenge to the entire statute, not a facial challenge to a subpart of the statute or an as applied challenge. I, I wonder if you could talk about that and, and also address, you know, if we were to reverse the injunction, is there anything stopping um, Mr. Falk's clients from amending their complaint uh, and seeking a narrower injunction, an injunction against just one part of the statute or, or an application in, in a certain set of circumstances? Well, those are very broad abstract questions, and I, I don't know what they would be seeking. I think their desire is to have this statute wiped out uh, wholesale. I think that's why it's a facial challenge. It presents, I think, uh, important problems for that distinction that there are no uh, pregnant women in this case. Uh, what is it exactly that's going on here? It's a, it's a you know, it's a, uh, a a group of, of abortion providers that come forward and they want a broad declaration about this statute. Um, I read that to be a facial challenge. Uh, and I think that particularly given what this court has said in cases like Price, that's very difficult where you don't have somebody whose actual rights are before the court. So if there is some way to modify this lawsuit to make a bring a narrower challenge, uh, you know, I, I assume that the plaintiffs would have done that. I assume that's a strategic decision. I guess my only point is if, if we reverse, there's nothing that stops them from doing that, right? <laughs> they could amend in this case or bring a new lawsuit that's more narrowly tailored to a specific set of circumstances or specific I part of the statute. I, I, no, no doubt. Whether it's in this case or a different case, I'm sure that they could put that put forward that very quickly. So I think we have to just, you know, not try to, to guess what would be the next case, but to just, you know, look at the case we've got right now. I know I've been talking for a while. I'll, I'll uh, reserve whatever I have left for rebuttal unless there's additional questions. Thank you. Thank you. We'll hear from you again. Um, I just certainly did not show who's your hospitality at the beginning of this by not acknowledging counsel that's at the bench. So if you could just give me a minute. Um, of course. Mr. Folk, uh, representing the, um, plain, the appellants here today, along with um, uh, Solicitor General Tom Fisher, we have James Barda. Good morning, Mr. Barda, and welcome. And Melinda Holmes. Good morning, Ms. Holmes. We have Ken Folk here representing the appellees and also council table. We have Stevie Pactor. Good morning and welcome, Stevie Pactor, and Allison Slater. Good morning, Ms. Slater. I'm sorry for my error on that. Mr. Folk, are you ready to proceed? Thank you. Madam Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Describing SB1 as a total ban on virtually all abortions, while certainly accurate, sanitizes the harm that it will cause. It prohibits health care providers from supplying necessary care to protect the physical and mental health of all Hoosier women. It will severely injure women and girls and will injure the plaintiffs, giving them standards. The trial court correctly found that plaintiffs were likely to succeed on their claims that Article I, Section 1 creates judicially enforceable rights. This gives the words of the provision meaning, as required by this court's constitutional analysis, and has been the holding of numerous cases from this court and comports with the natural rights philosophy upon which our Constitution is based. Liberty has meaning, and its core value is the right to manage the most private aspects of our lives free from unwarranted government interference. This includes the right of a woman to reproductive control. Of course, the founders in 1851 were not attempting to advance women's rights and were not thinking about reproductive issues. Although it's worth noting that at the time of our first Constitution, in a common law, abortion was not unlawful prior to quickening. And as the Court has noted, even in 1851, it was not unlawful to preserve the life of the woman. 
But our constitutional analysis is not frozen in time, protecting only what was within the experience of the founders in 1851. We look to the essential values which animate constitutional provisions, and we must apply those values to today's circumstances. The circumstances necessarily evolve and change over the stream of time, and given the safety of abortion and the fact that it's been part of the life of Hoosiers, Hoosier women particularly, for almost 50 years, the trial court properly found, consistent with decisions from some of our sister states, that plaintiffs were likely to be able to demonstrate that the statute is an unwarranted, unconstitutional government interference. Counsel, I have a threshold issue about um, likelihood of success on the merits. Um, was it for the trial judge to decide um, that the plaintiffs, your clients, had a likelihood of success on the merits with her or with the five of us? I, I didn't get the last. With who? I'm sorry. With her or with? With the five of us, with this court. <laughs> I think the judge was deciding that based on the state of the law, we had a likelihood of success on the merits no matter who heard the case or who heard the appeal. And I think that was clearly a correct Likelihood of decision. success in the trial court or in the appellate courts? Well, I think, I think it was clear that this case was going to the appellate court. But I think what the judge was attempting to do, and we think successfully, was look at this court's constitutional analysis, look at the text, look at the history, look at the purpose, look at the structure, and look at case law, and decide, in fact, Article 1, Section 1 has a definite meaning. It does protect this core value, and that core value is violated by SB 1. Do I understand correctly that your defense of the trial court's injection, injunction is based exclusively on Article 1, Section 1? Yes, at this point, we have an Article 1, Section 23 claim concerning part of the statute that is not appealed, and Mr. Fisher was correct. We did withdraw our Article 1, Section 12 claim once we could figure out all, what the statute is. Altogether, not just for purposes of this appeal, but Article 1, Section 12 is gone, period? Yes, yes. We had challenged one particular section, and or two sections that we thought were in conflict. They was explained to us why they were not. But that's not in a record. We have no idea what that was. We've got the complaint, and we say there was an agreement, but the transcript was not attached, was not provided. I, I apologize for that, Your Honor. We did withdraw that argument before the uh, trial court, and I believe we made note of that in our brief uh, as well as perhaps in the filings in the trial court, and I apologize that it was not clear. I have a question about the threshold issue of, this, of standing. Of course. Um, we, we typically don't allow health care providers to assert claims on behalf of their, their patients. For example, physicians aren't bringing medical malpractice claims on behalf of their patients against other physicians who might have been negligent. Why is the abortion context different? Well, let's step back for a second. I think plaintiffs have standing here because they are suffering injury. No one's doubting that the plaintiffs will be injured. What the state is arguing is that the plaintiffs can't claim that Article 1, Section 1 is violated because those rights belong to women. The problem with that argument is that would mean that if Dr. Caldwell went out and performed an abortion when it was illegal and was prosecuted, she could not claim that Article 1, that SB 1 violated Article 1, Section 1. This court explicitly rejected that precise argument in Cheney. This court noted in Cheney, and I'm quoting, and the court quoted from the Griswold case, certainly the accessory should have standing to assert the offense which he is charged with assisting is not or cannot constitutionally be a crime. And then the court quickly dismissed any a notion of a standing difficulty by saying there can really be no doubt about the existence of a case or controversy in this instance. Plaintiffs have standing here because they face certain injury. We've got, in Cheney, we were looking at a federal claim. We were looking at a federal claim, correct? We're looking at standing. We're looking at the ability to claim a, any defense in but that when you case. Look, when I look at how this case was pled, 
It wasn't, this was pled based on the woman's right. It wasn't based, I mean, it's, granted, I, I understand your direct injury argument, but it wasn't pled that way. It wasn't pled that the doctor's rights are being infringed constitutionally because they had a constitutional right to perform abortions. I think we argued throughout that we were representing the women's rights as well, because we argued not only direct standing under Cheney, we also argued third-party standing. And also, Your Honor, there's, there's public standing. And I realize the public standing doctrine has been buffeted about recently by this court, but it still exists in situations where there is injury to the plaintiff, and the plaintiff is raising a matter of substantial public there, importance. There are no cases in Indiana saying that there's public standing to enforcement of a private right. There are many cases in Indiana, cited in Citadine, which recognize public standing when a constitutional question is presented. And it's hard to think of a question that's more important. This, this court granted immediate transfer under 56A specifically because this case raises a question of law of great public importance. When you say, I want to get, get back to the, something I'm really struggling with. When you talk about, you're talking about natural law. You're saying that Article I, Section 1 should incorporate what's considered natural law. You know, one, what are the limiting principles in that? And when you look at the abortion issue, there, uh, there are good people on both sides of this issue. Yes. Right. So if you call a right natural, it implies that to oppose it is taking a stance contrary to nature. You know, and there's educated, moral people on both sides of this issue. So I'm really struggling with what the limit, if we say that this probably the most irreconcilable issue we have right now, and we decide we're going to make it a fundamental right based on natural law, I don't see any limiting principles. And, and I, 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 you know, how do you get there? Because when you go back and you look at what natural, philosophically what natural law means, so what, it, what it meant to the founders and what was the law at the time, and then even bringing it current, so even forgetting the test that the state talked about with regard to looking at history, how do we take something that is so charged and by you know, become editors and say, we're going to plug this in and call this forever a constitutional right. Because then the issue becomes, you're asking for a qualified right, because the state, you acknowledge that the state has a legitimate interest with regard to protecting the unborn, correct? Yes. Who qualifies that right? Do we, do all those cases just come to the courts now to qualify that right? Whether it's 15 weeks, 20 weeks, 25 weeks? Help me with that. Of course. Well, let's start at the beginning. Within each constitutional provision, there are essential values, core values, which can be qualified but not alienated. The founders recognized that we had ceded some of our rights to form the police power. We retained the rest. We retained a right of liberty, a right which uh, Justice Perkins said included such things as the ability to drink cold water, this privacy. We recognized, Chief Justice Shepard recognized in Lawrence that the core of liberty is the right to manage one's own life free from unwarranted government interference. An essential component of this liberty interest, which has been recognized throughout since 1851 to protect uh, the right to contract, the right to drink alcohol or manufacture alcohol, and of course the right for uh, Antoinette Leach to become a lawyer practicing before this court. An essential component of that interest is the right of a woman to make intensely private decisions concerning procreation. I would ask this court, what would the founder say if tomorrow the General Assembly passes a law which says Hoosier women could only have two children? Or all of us, Hoosiers, we could only receive health care for substantial and irreversible impairment of major bodily functions, nothing else. 
I think we all would recognize that violates something. It doesn't violate what you see in Sections 2 through 37 of, the, of Article 1. It violates liberty, the essence to manage one's own life in areas that are most assuredly not yielded up to the body politic. This includes the right to make decisions concerning procreation, which includes the right of abortion. Where do we draw the line? Well, of course, this court is not allowed under material burden analysis to weigh the state's interests, but the legislature certainly can. The legislature can certainly advance interests of the fetus, interests of the woman's health, and the legislature has done so. I would refer back to Brizzy. I realize Brizzy did not answer the Article I, Section 1 question, but Brizzy recognized that those hurdles could be placed in the way of women to obtain abortions as long as they not, were not what the court said was substantial obstacles. And so was there a reason that you didn't like with regard to, so even if this law, even, even if there's not a judicially enforceable right, or maybe there is one for sections of it with regard to a woman's right to life, there's strict, you know, we have Indiana's version set forth in price of rational basis or strict scrutiny, material burden. You did not make those arguments in this case. Is that correct? And, and what do you believe goes back? to the trial court? Well, we made, we made the material burden analysis, which is, which is the Indiana analogy of, to, to strict scrutiny. We certainly made that argument. Uh, and what goes back to the trial court, I believe, uh, is a decision on exactly the various ways this law may impact. We made allegations or statements in our affidavits. I think that has to be proven up. Uh, Mr. Fisher opened up his argument talking about uh, the fact that a fetus is a distinct human being. Uh, I think that's more of an opinion than a statement of fact. Uh, it's belied by Indiana law, by the way, which defines human being as uh, something that is alive. But we would certainly want the opportunity to challenge the uh, affidavits the state made. But, uh, but I do agree with Mr. Fisher that the ultimate question in this case is, is are we, do we have a probability of success of establishing that Article 1, Section 1 is violated by, by SB. What other facts would you want elicited at trial then? So you're asking for a merits review on uh, Article 1, Section 1 as well as the state? I think the, the facts in this case were introduced primarily by the state. Um, by, this, by what? By the state uh, through their affidavits. Um, we did not have a chance to challenge them. The court acknowledged them, trial court acknowledged them in passing. Um, I, I do not know what form a trial would take in this case, but I do think we'd be raising the exact same legal argument that we're presenting to this court and we'd be presented to the trial court. But of course, as you noted, we're here in the context of do we have a probability of success uh, on the merits. Counsel, I, I, like everyone else here, I mean, I, I've watched this controversy rage over uh, constitutional interpretation since I was 12 years old. Uh, and not just in the context of abortion, right? Um, and the academy seems to have fallen into two camps, right? The, the, on the one hand, sort of the living constitutionalists, and on the other hand, those who, who um, assess original public meaning. And it, it seems the trial court below, uh, in its ruling, really fired a, a shot across the bow at the entire concept of original public meaning when she said that the framers of the Constitution in 1851 had significant existing deficits. Um, you know, what are we to make of that? Are, are we to hold the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments in less reverence because they came from a 18th century Virginian? No, Your Honor. 
and I think what, and I, obviously I'm not the trial judge, but I think what we take from that is a recognition of what I said in my beginning, which is that we find the core concept and we apply it to modern manifestations. The founders were not thinking about women becoming lawyers. And in fact, the Leach case, less for 42 years after the Constitution, made it quite clear that the Supreme Court there recognized that they were going contrary to what the founders would have thought. I'm not faulting the founders. But this, I, this court has, on multiple occasions, embraced original public meaning as a way of interpreting the Constitution. Would we not have to abandon that? Not at all. In order to rule in your favor? Not at all. Again, what is the core value? What is the core value in Article I? What did Chief Justice Shepard say the founders thought? The founders thought that, that liberty meant the ability to manage one's own life, except in those areas yielded to the body politic. That's exactly what Justice Perkins said in Beebe and Herman. Um, Justice Perkins, the only justice of this court who served both before and after the 1851 Constitution. That is liberty, and we have to apply that today. In, in, as I said, in 1893, we applied it to deal with a woman becoming an attorney. Today, we deal with it in terms of women being able to well, what else does it mean? Does it I'm sorry? Mean the, what else does it mean? Does it mean the right, for example, to use illicit drugs because it's my body and I'm in a position no. to I have self-determination? Does it include the right to physician-assisted suicide? I mean, what, what's the, what, what other rights fall within the, the, the broad right that you're sure. asking us to embrace? Well, this court has put limiting principles on its analysis. The first thing, obviously, is there has to be a material, not a slight burden. And even if there is a material burden, this court has noted that that burden can exist if to effectuate that interest would, in essence, create an individualized harm analogous to tort. If you have assisted suicide from a third party, that, that's a tort. The third party is committing a tort. If you are talking about things like drug use or seat, wearing a seatbelt, you're talking about a much more de minimis impact on one's ability to have one's own identity. It's, it's difficult to think of something that cuts more to personhood, to our individualization, to our privacy, than the state telling a woman, look, we know you're suffering from this terrible preeclampsia or, or diabetes, or we know that you're mentally ill and you have to stop taking your medicines and you're going to be really, really in bad shape, but I'm sorry, you can't get an abortion. Mr. Folks, so you're asking for the court to determine that there is a qualified right, and you would agree it's qualified right under Article One, Section 1, is what you're asking for. Well, every right is, is, can be qualified, yes. What, tell me what that, how, how would that right read? What is that quali what is the right? What is the qualification on the right? Well, there is within Article I, Section 1, uh, an interest in autonomy and privacy that protects a woman's right to obtain abortion subject to legislation which may tailor that right, provided that there remains, as I think uh, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court uh, said in Dobbs, there remains a meaningful opportunity to obtain an abortion. Well, How let me does our presumption of constitutionality apply into our analysis? We have a longstanding pr uh, principle that laws are constitutional, that we take into effect when we look at, or before we look at something unconstitutional. How, how do we apply that to I, the burden here? How does it affect your burden on preliminary injunction? Well, it affects our burden that we have to demonstrate in, in, a, in a strong way that we are probably succeed on the merits and 
finding this law to be unconstitutional. Uh, and we accept that burden, and we believe we've met that burden. Trial court found we met that And then just related to that, what difference does it make that you brought this as a facial challenge to the entire statute, not just a subpart? I mean, isn't it your burden on appeal to show that there is no possible application of this statute in any set of circumstances that could ever be constitutional? Yes. When, when we have a facial challenge, as this court made clear in Brizzy, that is our obligation. And so is there, is there a point in the pregnancy, for example, where the General Assembly is allowed by our Constitution to uh, take away the right to terminate a pregnancy if it's not necessary to protect the life or health of the woman? Think the Roe trimester framework. Think Casey's viability standard. Is there ever a point that the General Assembly can do that? Uh, of course, Your Honor. And we, and we are asking to go back to what the law was prior to SB1, which but contained did, that. Didn't you just concede we have to reverse them? Because the injunction is an en enjoins the entire statute in all of its applications. Well, right. And that, that because the, 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 the entire statute replaces the previous framework. We, we are not saying that women have the right to obtain abortions eight months into the pregnancy. We're saying... Then, then doesn't the injunction have to only limit the statute for the first eight months of a pregnancy? Well, no, because... The way the statute reads, abortion is, is virtually prohibited in all circumstances. What the preliminary injunction does is it, re, it returns the status quo as it would have been on uh, September 14th if the statute had been allowed to go into effect, which, as this court recognized in Brizzy, does protect the state's interest in advancing the fetus. It does protect a woman's health, but it does so in a framework where abortion is still possible. Consider this analogy. Think of the Affordable Care Act, which is a massive, massive piece of legislation. There were some plaintiffs that succeeded uh, all the way up to the United States Supreme Court on the narrow argument that certain provisions of the Affordable Care Act impinged on their First Amendment rights because it required them to provide certain contraceptions that were contrary to their religious beliefs. C could it possibly be the case that, say, a district court could enjoin the entire Affordable Care Act because some provision of it, as applied to those plaintiffs, you know, might be unconstitutional? No, because they argued, as you note, they argued that this violates our First Amendment rights, and they specifically said, we're not saying this is unconstitutional for everyone. I would challenge the court to look at this statute, and if, in fact, there is a constitutional right to abortion or emanating from liberty, to say that there are any portions of this statute that survive that analysis. But, but we're not... We're not saying that everything is wiped away, because what we have is, is a rather robust, protective statute of the state's interests, which existed up to SB1. If, if we agree with you that there is an abortion right to be found under Article 1, Section 1, um, what, um, what interest, counter, counterbalancing that interest, is the state's interest in fetal life? Would you describe it as legitimate, substantial, compelling? What, what's a I, I, don't, I don't think the land. Clearly, there is an interest. The U.S. Supreme Court recognized in Roe. Every case has recognized that. The law has recognized that. Brizzy recognizes that. I, I'm not in a position to tell you the, the language because it doesn't make any difference. The legislature can take it into account and, and, and has taken it into account. This court, under our analysis, material burden analysis, is not taken into account. We look only at whether there is a, 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 the substantial, a substantial impairment. But certainly the legislature has taken into account and they have tinkered with the law to provide what I obviously uh, might be considered to be very strong protections to advance those interests while still allowing a meaningful opportunity for women to obtain abortions.
Conversely, if we disagree with you and conclude that there is no right to abortion under Article 1, Section 1, do you agree with the state that that means that the preliminary injunction should be vacated? Yes, Your Honor. The preliminary injunction is based on the trial court's determination that we are likely to succeed in our Article 1, Section 1 claim. Doesn't end the case because we have an Article 1, Section 23 claim. But, but I think if the sole issue for this court is, was the trial court correct in determining that we have a probability of success on our Article 1, Section 1 claim? As we're discerning whether and what rights exist under Article 1, Section 1, what's the argument that the, the woman's, the mother's right um, of, in liberty to, to terminate her pregnancy is to be given precedence over, for example, the, the right of the unborn child to life, the inalienable right to life that Article 1, Section 1 also protects? Well, again, what does Indiana law tell us? Indiana law tells us that even in 1851 there were situations where abortion was, was legal. What does Indiana law tell us today? Indiana Code 3531.5-2-160, the criminal code, defines human being as an individual who is born and is alive. Even under our tort law for wrongful injury and wrongful death, where it is possible to get damages for death or injury to a fetus, the fetus has, has to attain viability. We have never equated the life of the woman with the potentiality of life that is the fetus. We have allowed the state to take that into account, to promote it, which the state certainly does through things like waiting, mandatory waiting periods and, and mandatory informed consent notices, but we have never, ever allowed that to, to predominate. Even in reversing Roe and, and Casey, the Supreme Court did not find that that was a, a uh, equitable or equal equality between fetal life and, and, and the, the life of the mother. I don't, I don't know what words in your mouth, but I just wanted to ask you about the, uh, the constitutional provision itself. Are, are we stuck in 1851, or should we be looking at the Constitution as amended in 1984, and, and, and what bearing that should have had uh, as it relates to our standard of review and the, the decision the trial court made? We are not stuck in 1851 any more than we are stuck in, you know, 1816. I think the fact that the Constitution was amended to emphasize the fact that we're finally going to acknowledge that women's rights are human rights is significant, but I think it also uh, countenances our recognition that we have to look at today and try and interpret these provisions in light of today's circumstances. We, we know that the founders debated liberty, debated Article I, Section 1, long and hard, because they obviously thought it had meaning. We know that the founders did not consider women's rights. We know that this court in 1893 said, basically, different day. We're going to look at what Article I, Section 1 means, but we're going to apply today's circumstances, and now we have to apply it to the circumstance today, recognizing that in 1984, the state of Indiana took an affirmative step to, a, to at least acknowledge that we should treat women's rights uh, equal to those of quote-unquote men. Mr. Falk, I had just one more uh, question for you, and it's a procedural one. Uh, we can, of course, affirm on any basis that's supported by the trial court, uh, yes. the record in the trial court. If we didn't agree with you that um, there's a constitutional right as broadly reflected in the injunction as it currently stands, 
but thought maybe you've identified you know, some issue with a particular part of the statute, say something that relates to the exception to protect the life of um, the woman. Would we be able to narrow the injunction at this stage? Would we be able to say, you know, we reverse the injunction in large part, but we affirm it as it's applied to this particular part of the statute in this particular set of circumstances? I certainly think so, Your Honor. I think this court has the right to look at the trial judge's decision and, and make any modifications to it based on the law uh, that, that would seem to be appropriate. I don't think that's necessary, obviously, uh, given— Understood. But, but I, I don't think that was certainly not beyond your power. Curious about that, though, as well. And I, I'd ask Mr. Fisher a little bit about this. But the position, as I understand it, that you, you've taken on behalf of uh, your clients is that, you know, like, look, there's a statutorily protected right to abortion under certain circumstances, and, and, and they provide a service to folks that are of limited means. It's much more expensive to go to a hospital. You, you made the arguments, but can, can you speak to that and, 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 and whether or not, if you're not asking for it, I guess you're not asking for it, but it, it seems to me that that is at least a possibility that we should consider is whether or not there should be some sort of a carve-out. Certainly. Our Article 1, Section 23 argument was based on the distinction between hospitals and clinics. You know, clinics, as you know from the record, 98% of all abortions have occurred there. Abortions are extremely safe, 14 times safer than childbirth, etc. So that argument is there. The court did not agree with us on Article 1, Section 23 in the preliminary injunction context, but that was not necessary because the court found that denying people the opportunity to go to clinics created uh, this, um, even for the limited example, circumstances when abortions can still occur, uh, created a material burden. Um, this court can certainly look at that solely through the eyes of Article 1, Section 1 as well as applied, but we don't think that's necessary. Just hold Justice Goff that we're not stuck in 1851. Does that mean, in your view, that there was no right to abortion under Article 1, Section 1 in 1851? I don't know. Uh, I, 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 I mean, obviously, we don't know from looking at that. Um, I, again, I think the better analogy is what would the founders have said if there was another law burdening reproduction? Hoosier women cannot have more than two children. Again, I don't know what they would say, but I would have to think that someone would have said, you know, if, if, if given their thoughts and expressions on liberty, that would seem to clearly violate a liberty interest. And if that clearly violates a liberty interest, then bringing us up to the modern day, we're talking about the same liberty interest with regard to, to abortion. What is the test? We, I mean, when, when you're asking us to determine a liberty interest based on natural law, we, we have a lot of precedents that before we would even put our toe in that, you look at the language of the statute, you look at the framers' debate, you look at the existence of laws, um, prohibiting, that doesn't, your, your doesn't fit into that. You're asking us to adopt a new rule for no, when's no. a liberty, because how does that fit into that? And where are the guardrails as far as 50 cases being filed? We find that this is a right, this is a natural right to ours that should be found in Article 1, Section 1. We look at the text, and the text talks about liberty. It must mean something given the fact that every word of our Constitution is deemed hammered into place. We what else would be liberty? If, you, if, the, if the right to abortion is a liberty interest, what else would be a liberty? What else do you believe the court should read into that statute? Well, I mean, or, I think, I'm sorry, that section. I think we saw in Lawrence, which, which 
alluded to Article I, Section 1 as being the foundation of our robust law in Indiana protecting patient autonomy and self-determination. We're talking about these incredibly personal decisions that I think, whereas the founders were not thinking of them, would certainly have recognized that they invade this specific province that we have reserved to ourselves and that we have never ceded back to the state, which is why we, we look at... We have two at liberty interests here. We have the liberty interests of the unborn child and the liberty interests of the, the mother. How within Article I, Section 1 are those balanced out? Well, Your Honor, again, we reject the notion that we should equate the life of the mother with the fetus. And this court, excuse me, Indiana law has never made that distinction. Indiana law has recognized that the state has an interest, if it chooses to do so, in promoting fetal life, which it does vigorously in the law that existed prior to SB1. But to say that liberty applies in the same way, no. I, I don't, and I, certainly I don't think the founders would recognize that, especially in an era where so many uh, children died prior to birth. Uh, that, that the idea that that somehow equated the two lives and that was not what the law said. The law recognized that the woman's life came first because even in 1851, abortion was not unlawful if, in fact, it was necessary to secure the life of the mother. Do you believe with regard to, and maybe taking off the liberty over to the life, that, um, that the statute, um, as it's written, with regard to the exceptions for the mother's life, conditioned on the doctors getting a number of things done before he can tend to the mother, and Dr. Caldwell's affidavit saying that this law will cause maternal um, death is enough to overcome the um, enough to keep the uh, overcome the findings that we have to make with regard to the preliminary injunction. I think it supports the notion of how severe the injury is here that is being faced, and it certainly exemplifies the fact that we're dealing with a part of a human endeavor which it cuts to the core of we would all recognize as privacy and liberty. Yes. I would welcome you to take additional time, as I gave General Fisher additional time. Well, just welcome my colleagues' questions as well. I'd be happy to take more questions, but just in conclusion, obviously I'd like to thank the court for this opportunity to present our argument. I'd like to thank Mr. Fisher, my longtime advocate, we're well and and opponent, we're we're in our third decade, for helping to frame this important issue. But I would like to end where I began. If this law goes into effect, Hoosier women and girls will suffer. Some will die. That, in and of itself, doesn't invalidate SB1, but exemplifies the fact, as I just said, that this law invades the most private of spaces, where private decision must be and is protected by liberty, and the trial court's preliminary injunction should therefore be affirmed. Thank you. Colleague, any other questions? Questions from the bench? Thank you, Mr. Paul. Rebuttal, Mr. Fisher, General, General Fisher. Thank you, Your Honor. A, a couple of, uh, of points to wrap up. Uh, Mr. Falk adverted to the idea that we can't update the Constitution by looking at core principles and applying them to modern manifestations of liberty. Uh, abortion is not a modern manifestation of liberty. Abortion is something that's been around since humanity. The founders uh, and the framers of the Indiana Constitution were well aware of abortion. They outlawed it before, during, and after the period of adoption. This is not uh, a new scenario. This is something that's well covered and well understood historically. And in that regard, Indiana, except for the period during the Roe and Casey regime, when Indiana was, uh, you know, forced kicking and screaming into a, an era where we had to permit some abortions, uh, Indiana has always recognized the right to, of, of the embryo to, to life. 
Uh, and of, of course, the range of abortions that Mr. Falk is urging upon the court would end the lives of, of so many of those, of all of the aborted, uh, aborted fetuses. So uh, I think that's one of the flaws with the, the analysis being put forth in terms of trying to distinguish this type of right from, for example, I don't know whether it's marijuana or, or physician-assisted suicide, whatever it is, uh, there's a failure to recognize that there is something else on the other side of the equation besides the woman seeking the abortion, and that is the unborn life within her. And that's something that the legislature uh, has decided to respect, and it's uh, not beyond their uh, ability to uh, enact laws uh, for an ethical purpose to respect that life. Um, I think with respect to the, uh, this question about what the, the delegates thought about natural rights and, and what that means and what the limits are, I, I do want to direct the court back to a, a comment of Delegate Howe um, at the Constitutional Convention where he observed that it would be a misapprehension to read Section 1 as anything but an acknowledgment of rights held under the laws of nature. Section 1, he explained, did not contravene the power of man by the public or municipal laws of states to divest other men of those rights. That, that idea finds, finds articulation also in the price We also case. have Delegate Dunn who talked about, I understand the very object of the Constitution is to protect, to protect the minority in the enjoyment of the rights, to put a restraint on the hot blood and the strong arm of the majority, and lessen your strength. So we've got debates both sides. Is that fair to say? You do, but you've also got precedent saying, in Price in particular, saying that natural rights, they antedate the Constitution, they antecede the Constitution, but they're not uh, something that uh, the legislature has to deem off limits. You would speak, and, and I, I think I'd cut you off, or one of us did. When, you, when I asked you if you think a total abortion ban would pass constitutional muster, and you said you thought that that would be problematic. Where it would yeah, a total I, abortion ban with, with no exceptions, no exceptions for the life of the woman. And you believe it would that would not I think, pass? I, I think that there's a. I, I have grave doubts about that because okay, I, then tell me uh, based on it would not pass constitutional muster, and tell me why you believe that. I think I think that the historical use of uh, I think there would be a problem with the with describing a legitimate use of the police power based on history. Now that doesn't mean it's an Article One, Section One claim, but I think whether it's there or under 123, the question would be, is this the sort of thing that we can look at historically and, and feel like this is what legislatures legitimately do to, to force people to, uh, to forego treatment that would, uh, would save their lives? Just you know, And, and I don't think uh, that that would bear up under historical What support. do we make, since we're, again, we don't have the transcript and we're on a preliminary injunction stage being asked to decide the full merits, when there is a document, um, Dr. Caldwell's affidavit, that believes that SB1 will cause women to die. Uh, that is a policy argument. She's, of course, there's an exception for women who's, uh, where the life or the grave health. A condition, a condition, right. You've got to do certain steps before you can treat the woman. <laughs> well, fair enough, but you still have, you still have the carve-out. Now, uh, her assessment that, that the law is costs more than it benefits is simply that. It is a, an assessment of costs and benefits, and the legislature is the place where we have those debates and where we sort those questions. We don't do it based on expert affidavits in, in, in Indiana trial courts. Uh, we have a legislature that is accountable for those kinds of decisions. And, Counsel, uh, could you also address the procedural question that I posed to Mr. Falk, mm -hmm. which is, if we were to agree with you that the injunction is too broad, but if we were to agree with Mr. Falk that there's some provision in here that, run, that butts up against what you've conceded as a right of, of a woman to terminate a pregnancy to protect her own life, procedurally, I know you think it would be the wrong substantive outcome, yeah. the procedural question is, would we be able to affirm the injunction only as to a particular subpart of the statute that is problematic or potentially problematic in that regard. I, I don't see how uh, that's not sort of claim has not been pled. It's been waived, if anything. And 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 I think what the what uh, what your honor invites is a, is a consideration of what 
the judicial world would look like if there was some right to abortion that the, the court were to recognize. Th think about what happened in federal court over the last 50 years and the micromanagement that took place. All the cases that, that have had to be litigated over the most minute of changes to abortion law. And I think that what you're, what you're touching upon there is this idea that we're going to have judges that go in and make an assessment of each and every law, each and every regulation, and whether it somehow shifts the burden too much or, not, or, or just the right amount or you know, all of that. And I think that that's a recipe for, for uh, judicial legislation, candidly. To be clear, that's, that's not at all what I was suggesting. What I was getting at was there's now consensus in this discussion uh, on both sides that there is a constitutional right of a woman to terminate a pregnancy in the circumstance where the pregnancy threatens her own life. So the procedural question was, if there's a part of the statute that may run afoul of that uh, uniformly recognized constitutional right if only that part of the statute could be enjoined at this stage, not whether there would be a broader Roe-type uh, trimester analysis or Casey viability-type analysis. Look, I think that the court is constrained by the, by the rule of party presentation. There hasn't been any uh, presentation by the plaintiffs that there is a threat to that Ability this statute provides an exception for life. I'm sorry, what? This statute provides an exception for life. Which is why they didn't bring such a claim. So I, that, that's why I think that this is, if, if the question is what, is the, what are the limits of the court's authority here, I think the court should respect the rule of party presentation. And that's if there's a, a problem with the scope of the uh, exception for the life of the mother in the statute, that has to be litigated separately. I don't think we can come to any assessment of it right here today. Um, I do want to point out that um, uh, the, uh, as to the common law, I, and, and as Mr. Fox uh, has adverted several times to somehow uh, uh, sources of law outside of the Constitution saying that, well, really life is not uh, embryonic life, it is only that which is born alive. And of course, it makes no sense to say on the one hand that statutes define, or common law define those terms, and yet to say this statute which, of course, mirrors the statute that was in place in 1850 uh, and all the way through to, to Roe, uh, somehow itself cannot define what is, is a protectable life. Um, so I think that all of that is just to say this is part of the legislative debate, part of the legislative authority. That's where we resolve these questions, and that's where the court should leave it. General Fisher, is it uh, it's a practical question about the, the breadth of SB1? If the injunction were lifted, would um, birth control options such as Plan B be banned, Ill illegal? Would, it, would a, a, a pharmacy, for instance, be subject to prosecution if it were administering or selling well, I don't, I don't understand Plan B to be exclusively an, an abortifacient. And I think that what we have to have for the, meet the elements of the crime is the knowing and intentional destruction of, of an existing pregnancy. And I think whatever you get into anything, I mean, I think certainly uh, Mifeprex uh, and, the, and the, the RU4086 regime are abortifacient regimes. Plan B, I think, is not necessarily that. I think that it potentially in some case might raise a factual question. But I think as a general matter, um, what we're talking about here is intentional destruction of a pregnancy or knowing destruction of a pregnancy. There's nothing further. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. I'm going to commend really both sides for the excellent briefing, excellent argument, the civility that you showed each other. I'd also like to thank the audience today for the same. Um, so those of you that are watching here in person, you had the opportunity to see two excellent advocates really at their best today. So we appreciate that. The court will be... Um, taking the issue and issuing opinion in due course. It's adjourned. All right.
not going to do this another